after James, before the letters to John and Revelation. Uh, and as you turn there, I just want to make a quick note about something uh, that's been a topic of conversation. And that is, a, a few months ago, before our sermon series in Malachi, I said, hey, I'm going to take the sermon slides off the screen that had the main points. There's a reason I did that. For some of you, you haven't noticed at all. They're only up there for a few seconds, and you aren't worried about such things. Probably for the majority of you, if we had a church vote, you'd say, I've really missed those. Uh, and you might wonder, why don't we have those anymore? Um, and I'm kind of intentionally frustrating you, I guess is the, the answer to that question. The reason we took the slides away for this time is, I'm, I guess I'd say more or less experimenting wondering if the slides were more of a distraction than a help. And really what I want to do is to teach us to look not to a screen, but to look to our Bibles and not just be waiting for main points, but to be interacting with the text all along the way. And my main points are there to help guide us along the way, but they're not the sermon itself. Uh, what the Holy Spirit does through his word, that's what I want us to focus on. And part of what I'm doing or experimenting with is wondering if we can learn to be better sermon listeners and if I can be a better communicator, not just relying on slides, but actually learning how to communicate better. I don't know if this will be ultimately successful, right? So this is what I'm going to ask you, for those of you who have been frustrated by it, and I understand, and I'm in some ways with you, give it a, little, a couple more months. We're going to experiment through First Peter, and then we'll reevaluate, and we might change back, or we might do something a little different. We're going to keep experimenting. So I guess I'm just making the ask that, just continue to be frustrated a little bit longer. I want to see if we get used to this. If we don't, we'll, we'll reevaluate that there's nothing in Scripture or in the law of the Medes and Persians about what you show on a screen. But I just wanted to give that note because I know it's been a point of frustration. I kind of intentionally kicked the hornet's nest, and some of you might, weren't sure why. So if that's important or helpful, hopefully that will explain something. What I'll also do in the new year, we're planning on doing a preaching workshop where I want to teach through why do we preach the way we do, why do we come to scripture the way we do, how do we communicate, and even giving some other people more opportunities to preach next year. Uh, I'll be preaching probably less next year than I have this year. So be on the lookout for that. We'll continue to talk about this. So with all that out of the way, I want to bring your attention to 1 Peter 1, 13 through 21. In fact, I invite you to stand with me if you are able and willing as I read 1 Peter 1, 13 through 21. I'm reading for the ESV, and it says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith 
and hope are in God. Amen. You may be seated. Our Father and God, we do pray that you would speak to us, that you would make your word clear to us this morning, that we would recognize your scripture, your word is our authority, that it guides and leads and teaches us. It is our, in many ways, our life, and you bring life through your word. And Lord, we pray it would be clear to us this morning that we may be changed by it, not only so that we would gain information, but Lord, through that revelation that we would be changed and that you would cause us to worship and praise your name even now. So we pray for your help. Keep us from error. May we praise the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Have you ever found yourself asking, what am I going to do now? It's one of those questions that comes up when we've had a change. So it might come up when you're about to leave the house and one of your children becomes violently ill. And you say, what am I going to do now? Change of plans. It's the kind of question you ask when you've lost a job. What am I going to do now? It's the type of question you ask when a boyfriend or girlfriend dumps you. And say, well, what am I going to do now with my Fridays and Saturday nights? It's a question kids might ask if they've broken something at home while the parents were away. You know, what am I going to do now? Do I call and let them know or wait <laughs> and reveal it later? What am I going to do now? It's a question you ask when a loved one dies. What am I going to do now? I like the way Chuck Colson put it in one of his... Famous books. If you don't know who Chuck Colson is, Chuck Colson was a political advisor for President Nixon, a political operative, one of his right-hand close men, and he was um, charged in the Watergate scandal involved in that. I think he was the first involved in that Watergate scandal to be incarcerated for it, and that actually changed his life. And through that, became a Christian and follower of Jesus Christ and devoted his life to men in prison and founded Prison Fellowship in 1973. And he really devoted his life to a Christian worldview, developing a, how do we view the world as Christians? And he taught and write about those things, and specifically, how do we live in the culture we're living in? And he wrote a book with Nancy Piercy, uh, I just like the title of it, called How Now Shall We Live? And I like that, because it doesn't just say, how shall we live, but it's asking, how now? Like now, in our present age, in this day that we are living in, given everything around us, how ought we live? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to steal his title, and I'm going to make that the main question of our time this morning. How now shall we live? Because I think that's the question Peter's answering in this text. Given our day, given the time that we live in, how shall we live? Peter is just introduced his letter to his readers, has given them encouragement. Remember, Peter is writing to Christians who are scattered throughout the world. He calls them exiles. You're not at home. Heaven is your home, and you're not there yet. You're exiles in the world, and you're scattered about. And Jesus has come, but he's returning one day, and we live in this age in between. So yes, he answers the question, I would say, how now shall we live? And it's a question for us, because we're in the same age as Peter's 
hearers. How would you answer this question? How now shall we live? If someone were to ask you, what are the keys to successful and faithful living in the age we are living in? And given our day, given our culture, given that we are followers of Jesus Christ, and somebody asks you, what are the keys to successful and faithful living? How now shall we live? How would you answer it? What would be your top three? I think here Peter gives us three basic commands for living in this age, followed up by three truths of the gospel that empower that living. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to work backwards. We're going to start at the end. So we're going to start in verses 18 through 21, because in verses 18 through 21, there Peter gives the truths of the gospel that empower our living. And the commands he gives in verses 13 through 17 are grounded in the truths of the gospel he gives in verses 18 through 21. You've heard me use the phrase before. If you've been around for a while, you might not remember it, but in Scripture, especially the New Testament letters, moral imperatives are grounded in redemptive indicatives. Fancy words. Moral imperatives are grounded in redemptive imperatives. What I mean by that is, in the New Testament letters, and pay attention when you read Scripture, you will find this out to be true, especially in Paul, you will see, that when Paul gives commands, or moral imperatives, or New Testament gives commands, they're grounded in the truths of the gospel. They're founded upon those truths. So it's not just command without any power to fulfill the command, without any reason or motivation. The New Testament will give moral imperatives, and they're always connected to the truth of what Christ has done. And that empowers our ability to follow him. So what I'm going to talk about first in verse 18 through 21 is what Christ has done. We're going to use three R words for that. He redeemed, he was revealed, and he was raised. And those three R words describe what Christ has done, and that will empower what we must do, that Peter talks about in verses 13 through 17. And I'll have three commands. So we're going to start at the end, verses 18 through 21, and talk about what Christ has done. Peter tells us, Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. These verses are actually part of one long sentence in the Greek. That happens often in the Greek. There's long sentences. But they're all about one thing, what Christ has done for us. And they can be summed up in three R words. He redeemed us. He was revealed to us. He was raised for us. Redeemed, revealed, and raised. That's what Peter talks about. First, let's talk about how Christ redeemed us. Peter says he ransomed us from the feudal ways inherited from our forefathers. The concept there in ransom is redemption. He redeemed. And what does it mean to redeem? To redeem something means to pay for it, to set it free. 
to pay for it, to set it free. So let's exam- or imagine we were going to an animal shelter, and this is my wife's worst nightmare. We were going to an animal shelter, and we're going to bring all those dogs and cats home. How do we do that? We pay for them. Or if you're going to a pet store. How do you bring all those cats and dogs who are in their cages? <laughs> tied up. What a, no, no, not tied up. But they're locked up. How do we bring them back to the freedom of our home? Well, we pay for them. That's redemption. In the Roman world, this applied to slavery. In that world, they had a pretty enmeshed or entrenched slave system. And slaves could be freed by redemption. Pay for them to set them free. I think Peter's, Peter has that thought, that concept in the background, but he's probably primarily referring to another kind of redemption. What kind of redemption primarily might he be referring to or leaning on? The redemption of God's people. In the Old Testament, the Israelites were in captivity in Egypt, but they were redeemed. They were set free. How? Through the payment of blood of lambs, death of the firstborn, curse upon the land, plagues. God redeemed his people and freed them. Now Peter says, you have been redeemed. You were purchased and set free. Set free from what? You were set free from the feudal ways you inherited from your forefathers. So Peter here, is, I think, is talking to pagans. He's not talking to people with a Jewish background. He's talking to people who had idolatry and paganism in their background, people who worshipped other gods. He's saying, you were set free from that. The feudal things you inherited from your forefathers. What are the things we inherit? We inherit hairlines. Uh, we inherit our shape. We inherit personality traits. We inherit money or debt. These pagans had inherited from their forefathers a culture of worshiping false gods, and with that, all types of sin and immorality, of prostitution, drunkenness, idolatry. And Peter saying, you've been freed from that. You were bought, and you are now free from it. How? What was the price? What was the cost of redemption? The cost was the blood of Christ. It is the cross of Christ that freed you, that spared you, and set you free from that old way of life. Jesus himself died, and by his perfect blood, you have been redeemed. This is the cost of your redemption, nothing less than the death of the Son of God. The cross shows us how much sin cost, and what the price is to set sinful people free. The perfect blood of Jesus Christ. He redeemed us out of our worthless former way of life. Second, he was revealed to us. Verse 20 tells us, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but now has been made manifest in these last times. He was foreknown, but now has been made manifest. He has been revealed to you. It's an interesting thing to think about Christ being foreknown. What does that mean? It means that as the Son of God, 
he existed for all time. Before the world was formed, before creation existed, he was known by God. He existed. And it also means that as Christ, the man, God, Jesus Christ, it was foreknown by God that he would come and live and die be raised for our sins. That the ministry, the work of Jesus Christ, his life and death and resurrection, all of that was the plan before creation was formed. Which means none of this is by accident. And Jesus' life and death and resurrection was not plan B. God did not look out on the world and say, oh no. It has gone to, you know, sin has ruined everything. What am I going to do? I know I'll think of something like a Savior. No. Jesus' life ministry was always the plan. Since before the world was formed, God always knew it was going to be this way, and then it always planned to send His Son, Jesus Christ, to be the Savior. It was not plan B, C, or D, or E. It wasn't by accident. It was the plan of God. And we could talk about why was that God's plan, and we can get into the, the eternal mind of God forever, and I would say, I, I don't know. I can't answer all the questions about the mind of God, but I can say, this was always the plan. Foreknown. And as we talked about last week, it was the thing that prophets wanted to know the most about. How would this happen? We have been privileged, as we talked about last week, because we now know how salvation has happened. We are not in the position of Abraham and Moses and David looking forward, wondering who is going to be the king who saved us. We know who that king is. We have a great privilege, like Peter's hearers, because we know who our Savior is. He's been revealed to us. We don't have to wonder. And lastly, thirdly, he was raised. Verse 21 says, God raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. This is always the plan. He was resurrected. I don't think Peter here is only talking about resurrection from the dead. He is also talking about Jesus' ascension into heaven raised in glory. Peter's talking about the fact that Jesus rules and reigns. He has won victory. He has conquered as a conquering king. Jesus conquered what? What did he conquer? Sin, death, and the devil. Over all the things that plague us, Jesus rules and reigns. And Peter wants us to remember this. That Jesus is a ruling and reigning king who's won victory for us. So our faith and hope are in him. We don't just have a generic faith. A, a generic just, just have faith is not helpful. You can have faith in the wrong things. You can have faith in the Denver Broncos. It does not help to have faith in something that constantly fails you. <laughs> Such faith is worthless. Right? Can I get it in then? Um, <laughs> faith on its own doesn't do you anything. 
You have to have faith in something that won't fail you. And Peter reminds them, while you're living in this age, your faith, your hope, are in the unfailing rule and reign of Jesus Christ. And he has conquered. And we put our faith in lesser things all the time. In ourselves. And put all our faith in our home. In our health. In our family. And all those things are, are good things, but they're not worthy of ultimate faith and hope. Our ultimate faith and hope are in the one who was raised and reigns. So Peter wants to ground us in all these truths that Jesus redeemed us. He was revealed to us and we know him and he was raised. And rules and reigns. That is what Christ has done. Now, knowing that, here's what we must do. Grounded in that truth, what must we do? How now shall we live? And Peter gives us those answers in verses 13 through 17. There are three main commands here. Three primary imperatives that Peter gives for us. You can see if you can pick them out as I read. Verses 13 through 17. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded... Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time. Of your exile. This is what we must do in response to what Jesus has done in the age we're living in now. I think there are three basic commands that sum up what Peter says here be certain, be holy, and be wary. Be certain, be holy, and be wary. First, let's talk about be certain. And to be certain is to have no doubt, to know for sure that something is true, and to set your hope fully on it. That's what Peter says here in verse 13. Preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be yours. Make yourself sure about this. How many of you like to play poker? Feel free to raise your hands in the house of God that you are gamblers and degenerates. Um, (laughs) That wasn't a trick. Uh, I was in college, well, first, I lived in Las Vegas during my high school years, and then I I went to college during the poker boom of the early 2000s. If you know what that was, that's when poker was big. It was on ESPN, Chris Moneymaker won the World Series of Poker, and then everybody thought they could win big, and the poker just exploded, and I just developed a love for the game of poker. Uh, One of the things I loved about watching poker, not always being in poker, but especially watching it, you know, I was the kind of nerd who would watch poker on TV, try and figure out what they were going to do and all that. But the best part about poker, the most exciting part is what? When somebody goes all in. It's that moment where they put all their chips in the middle and say, my my life or death is riding on this one hand and how those two cards come up and what you have in your hand. It's that all in moment where everything is on the line. I think that's what Peter is calling us to do with our faith and hope. 
to be all in. Gear everything in your life towards this. Set your minds fully on the grace that is coming to you in the end. How do we live in this age? Set your mind and your heart and your hope fully on what is coming for you, the grace that will be revealed to you in Jesus Christ. Put all of your cards, all of your chips there. Preparing your minds for action. Being sober-minded, he says. He's talking about training your mind. I love the Greek here. I think the old King James might translate it this way. We lose something sometimes in translation. But the Greek here for preparing your minds for action says, gird the loins of your mind. An awesome metaphor. Gird the loins of your mind. What in the world is girding the loins of your mind? Well, do you know what girding your loins is? You can do this at home. This is something you can take on. Kids, wear your parents' t-shirt or something. Wear a long robe. And what you notice about long robes, they're not good for running. If somebody's running in a bathrobe, like something's gone wrong. They're asking, what am I going to do now? Uh, In a long robe, it's hard to run. It's hard to fight. So what do you do? You gird your loins. You pull some of the robe up, pull it through your legs, wrap it around your waist and tie it into your belt. Now your legs are free to fight for action. What Peter's saying is, get your mind ready. Prepare your mind for action. Train it. Discipline it. Be sober-minded as you set your hope fully on what is to come. What Peter's saying is, don't have a lazy, drunken mind. I don't think he's just talking about alcohol, but certainly that's included. What he's saying is, do not be intoxicated in your thinking by the things of this world. I think... This is one of the enemies, this is one of the devil's greatest tactics. To get God's people drunk in their mind on the things of this world. Through distraction, through distress. To get you dizzy. Vexed, perplexed, confused. Lazy. Dull. Dull to the things of the spirit. With all the concerns of this life and all that this world has to offer. Sometimes, as I'm preparing sermons, things especially convict me, and this was one of those things. How easy is it to dull yourself on the things of this world and to forget to train your mind, just to kind of wander through life unthinking, uncritical? When Peter's saying, Set your mind on this. Train your mind. How do you do that? I think through scripture, through prayer, prayer, through fellowship with the people of God. Do all the things, all the means that God gives to you so that your mind and your heart and your soul can be sharpened on God's things. That doesn't mean there's no place for rest or leisure. God gave us the seventh day, right? Rest and leisure and all those things are needed. They're necessary. We have to sleep. We're finite people. So there's a place to kind of stop thinking because your mind needs a break. 
But the question is, are you disciplining and training your mind and your heart for the grace that's coming? Have you set your mind fully on the reward of heaven? Is that what consumes your thinking? Are you sharpened by such things? Is this where, when when all the chips are down, when everything crumbles, that you have your mind and heart trained? I know know where I'm going, and I know what Jesus Christ has done for me, so there's nothing that's going to distract me from that. I am headed home to heaven, and I'm doing all that I can to set my mind and my heart there. Not lazy and distracted by the world, but focused. When we're distracted by the things of this world, when our minds are drunk on the things of gossip and anger and hatred and games and frivolity and all the things that social media loves to offer us, all the things that cause us to lose certainty, cause us doubt and confusion, Peter calls us to be reoriented, to be sobered, to be certain that the grace is coming. First, be certain, be sure. Set your mind on it. Second, be holy. This is, I think, the big primary command of this whole passage, and it's going to be a theme that runs through the next number of verses in Peter. This call to be holy. Peter quotes Leviticus 11.4, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. If God is holy and we worship him and we're his people, then we must be holy as well. What does it mean to be holy? Keith reminded us. In the song Refiner's Fire, set apart for you, Lord, to be holy. To be holy is to be different, distinct, pure, unblemished, untarnished, to be set apart. Or as Leviticus says, consecrated. What is something that's consecrated? Something that's consecrated is set apart for a different purpose. So you might have consecrated clothes at home. Jewelry and clothes that you only wear for certain occasions. That you don't wear when you're going to Walmart. Those are consecrated clothes. Only for special occasions. They're set apart for a different purpose. And Peter says, you church, be set apart. You are to be different than the world around you. How are we to live in this age? The primary call is not be relevant so that you'll look just like the world around you and so that people will be able to understand what you're saying and you'll just be one of them, that's not the call of Scripture. The call of Scripture is be holy, be distinct, be different. And I understand Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, be all things to all people. So there is a measure in which we want to be intelligible to the world around us, but not like it. We want to do all we can to make sure the world can hear us, but we don't want to be just like the world around us. The call is be holy, be distinct, be different, be Christian. You're God's people. You don't belong to the idols and the pagans of this world. You belong to God himself, and he is different and distinct and pure. So you be holy. And I think there's something, I'm going to pick a little bit here, that the evangelical church at large has lost. We have de-emphasized holiness, so scared to turn people away that we will never make a high call because we don't want to offend anybody. We've forgotten what it means to demand holiness of our people. Afraid that if we ask a lot, then people might be turned away. And I think we unwittingly communicate that it really doesn't matter how you behave, because we're the church and anybody can be a part of it. And true, anybody can be a part, but you're also called to be holy. 
And while we're afraid of making demands, I think there are other people in the world who are demanding and calling for moral excellence, and people are listening to them. I was talking with a couple of young guys about this recently. There's popular thinkers who are very effectively drawing young men in particular. Not Christians. They tend to be conservative in some way, but they're gaining a lot of popularity. I think one of the reasons they're doing so is because they make a high demand or challenge young men in some way. So there are guys like Ben Shapiro or Jordan Peterson or a kind of a different breed of vile person, Andrew Tate. But what they have in common, a lot of these people, is they challenge in a particular way. And challenging and then demanding is something that actually draws people in and doesn't push them away a lot of the times. I say this for all people, I think I'm talking to young men in particular, I think there's something about a demand and a high challenge that engages. This is why we like sports. Why do we like sports? Why are people drawn to sports? I think there's something of a call to excellence, a call to merit, a call to performance, if you want to call it, but there's something about you are going to have a high demand and a high call for excellence. And we're going to ask you to meet that bar. And I'm convinced that that kind of environment, when it is also combined with high grace and high truth and high love and high mercy and high demand and high call, when that environment works together, that nurtures people. If you have one or the other, I don't think we grow people. This is not a totally... Fair quote, but I'll quote a guy by the name of Anthony Bradley. He's a Christian college professor and writer, taught in New York. And he said this, which is compelling. I don't know how much I agree with it, so I'll just put that out there, but it's compelling. He says this. Islam is successfully converting really influential young men because it focuses on living a moral life and ritualized self-discipline. Conditions under which young guys thrive. It's an invitation to move toward moral excellence. Sadly, Christian boomers viewed this as legalism and lost two generations of guys. What do they expect? There's a sting in that. Again, I'm not sure I totally fully agree with that, but he's getting at something. It is not legalism to call people to holiness. Legalism is when you think you're saved by your holiness. Remember everything we said in verses 18 to 21. That is what saves us, what Christ has done. But in response to what Christ has done, we are called to live differently and distinctly. Won't that turn people away? We make a high demand? Maybe. I think it'll draw more. And I'll make that case from First Peter. That a holy people is God's evangelistic method. And I don't think Jesus was afraid to turn people away. Did Christ make high demands of his disciples? If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. 
Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Jesus makes a high demand on his disciples to kill anything in your heart and soul that keeps you from following him in the holiness of God. So Christians, be holy. Put away your sin. Put away your drunkenness. Put away your gluttony. Put away your gossip. Put away your sexual morality. Put away your anger, your bitterness, your refusal to forgive others, your refusal to ask for forgiveness. Put away your pride. Put away all those things that keep you from the holiness of God. It's how we live in this age. We don't start by raging at the world and all its unholiness. We start and judgment begins at the house of God. Which gets into our last command in verse 17. Be certain and be holy in third be wary, not weary, it's a different word. Be wary, W-A-R-Y, which means to be on guard. I almost said here, be woke, but that has all sorts of other implications and I don't want to get into all that. But the concept is, be awake, be wary, be ready for danger, as Peter says in verse 17, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Peter calls us to fear God. It is a consistent call throughout scripture. If you point to the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, it will tell you the beginning of wisdom. How do we begin to develop wisdom? It starts here. Fear the living God. Fear God. No. He is a holy God, a consuming fire. Does that mean we don't have confidence before him? No, we have confidence because of what Christ has done. We have assurance of salvation because of what Christ has done. We have boldness in approaching the throne of God because of what Christ has done for us. That is still true. And at the same time, we also recognize that God is a judge. And all of us will stand before him. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. We will all stand where God the judge and give an account for what is done. Does that mean we'll be punished? No, in Christ... Our punishment is taken for us. All of our sins forgiven. All our good works rewarded. So that will be a good day for those in Christ. And yet at the same time, we should be sobered by the fact that we're going to appear before him. So I don't think, as confident as we will be, knowing that we are covered by the grace of Jesus Christ and all our sins forgiven, we have nothing to worry about. At the same time, I don't think we're going to approach the judgment seat of God flippantly. And the fact that we will all appear before him should sober us and make us ready now. Uh, 
I was talking to one of my kids about music lessons. How many of you have taken music lessons? Why do we take music lessons? And why not be self-taught? Self-teaching can be, I think, I don't know, I actually don't play an instrument, but I think self-teaching can be uh, as effective if you have the right type of personality. Maybe. But there's something about having to go back into your instructor and give an account for your practice over the course of the week that is really helpful. It is that accountability that I'm going to have to go back and, and they're going to know whether I learned this or not. All right? It's that accountability that judgment's coming, the test is coming, so get ready. And then the, the judgment of God and the judgment of Christ, and that coming judgment is actually one of the tools, the means that God uses to get us ready. The fact that we all know that when we die, we will appear before him. And God lets us know that so that we can be ready and put our trust and faith in Jesus Christ. So let me ask you, are you ready? Are you conducting yourselves with a proper fear? Having your mind trained, being sober by the fact that this life will pass and you will stand before God in judgment. Are you ready for that day? And I think each and every one of us in this room knows that day is coming, whether you would call yourself a Christian or not. There is something in all of us, no matter what we say we believe, I think there's something in all of our hearts and minds that knows judgment is coming, and I'm going to have to give an account for this life. We all know that that day is coming. And if you call on him as Father, if God is your Father, Walk with fear. It's a fear knowing that God is a holy judge mixed with a confidence that knows he's your father and your savior because of what Christ has done. It's how you live in this age. Put away the sins, the futility of your former life. Devote yourself. Devote your mind and your actions to the things of God. Why? Because of what Christ has done. Redeemed us, revealed to us, raised for us. So be certain and be holy. Be wary. Be ready to meet your Savior. Those three things will help you in living now. Can you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the grace given to us in Jesus Christ, that he has redeemed us by his blood, washed us clean, made us pure, so that we can approach your throne with confidence and certainty, in certain hope of the grace that will be ours in Jesus Christ and the reward of heaven.
May that knowledge drive us, Lord, to live in holiness and the fear of God throughout our days. Being a people set apart for you. And I pray, Lord, that you show us individually what that means for us now. Uh, that, that might mean something totally different for each person in this room, but I pray that you would help us to know how is it that you are calling us to walk in holiness. Whether it's stopping something or starting something, whether it's putting away a sin or putting on a good work. Pray, Lord, for our church that you would teach us corporately and individually how to walk in holiness and to do this by the grace and fear of God. To do this, we need your spirit. We need your son present in our hearts and minds. We pray for these things. And we do all this knowing you're a good father. He gives good gifts. And we praise your name. Amen.